I live in Horsford, right next to Leeds Bradford Airport. So if ever you hear that Leeds Bradford Airport is closed because of the snow, it means we're cut off as well because of the snow. It's the highest airport in the UK. Anyway, I live on a little, uh, a little cul-de-sac. And a few weeks ago, we've only got a tiny garden, but I like to keep colour in the front garden. We've got a little round patch where I put things. And I was planting some winter pansies. And there was a guy on the opposite side of the road. He was only in his early 20s, I think. And he was doing door-to-door selling. I could see him. It was cold. And I just shouted across to him. I said, when you come round here, if you want a cup of tea, you can have one. Oh, I'd love one, he said. In a month of Sundays, I've never been offered a cup of tea before. Anyway, eventually, you know, he came round. And I made, brewed up the cup of tea. And I gave it to him. He said, you know, I've done this job for a few years now. Nobody's ever offered me a cup of tea. So I said, well, that's fine. It's, I mean, what, what do you do for a living, he said. Oh, what a question. <laughs> so it took me about five minutes to explain. And then he said, have you always believed in God? And uh, I gave him my testimony, shared my testimony. Now, as I say, 23, 24, 25, nothing, away from the character. And um, I, told, I gave him my testimony and he just said, I don't want to offend you. But he said, I'm an atheist. I said, oh, all right. I said, why are you an atheist? Mm. Now, remember, I've never seen this guy before. His name's Adam. I think I'd found that out. But i uh, never seen him before. And as he answered, he began to cry. And he said, I was brought up in a, a really, really rough home on a terrible estate in Bradford, really rough part of Bradford. Well, actually, any part. Anyway, we'll leave that. <laughs> and, um, and, um, he said, I was brought, uh, and he said... Um, I was visiting my dad in hospital just recently. He's dying. And um, he said, because I was with my dad who was dying, he said I was delayed. And he said, I was late going to see my ex. And because I was late, she wouldn't let me see my kids. And now I can't see them for five months. And he just started crying. And then he said, will you pray for me, please? Well, remember, three minutes earlier, he was an atheist. But now... Will you pray for me, please? So, yeah, I prayed for him. We had a lovely little chat, and I got a book, and found out whereabouts he lived, and there was a church there I could recommend he went to, etc. We had a nice little chat, that was it. As he was going down the drive, he just turned and said, Will you pray for my dad as well, please? And I said, Adam, I will. And I thought, you know, 20-odd years ago, that guy probably would have said, I'm a Christian. But he wouldn't have been a Christian. He would have just said it because that was the default position of 25 years ago. But now, 25 years later, we're in the position where the default view is, I'm an atheist, but they're not. They think they are. They're, they're imbibing it from the BBC, the homosexual channel on, on television. They're imbibing this and they sort of feel they're atheists, but they're not. But we are living, I think, in very difficult days. Now, Claire, you're right, there are some great encouragements. And, you know, you meet an adult, isn't that encouraging? There are great encouragements. Uh, but let's face it, these are tough times. So, if I can talk about Yorkshire, five and a half million people in Yorkshire, that's larger than the population of Scotland, 0.3% go to any sort of Bible-believing church. That is less than Japan. 1% in Japan go to a Bible-believing church. Yorkshire is 0.3%. Now, I could carry on talking about this particular county, which, of course, is dear to my heart, but we are in a very desperate situation. But do we just throw up our hands in horror and say, you know, that's it? I, I read last week, or I haven't quite finished, actually, 
the biography of, of Mary Slessor. Now, I'm going to read the situation she went to to begin with. Actually, later on, she goes to another situation which is even worse, but there isn't a similar paragraph describing it in the same way. So, 19th century missionary, and of course, if David wasn't just talking about Britain in the 19th century, but was talking about the missionary endeavour as well, wow, that's another story completely. What a bold, brave woman. No wonder she's on the, the Scottish Clydeside Bank £10 note, and I don't blame her, but... This is this single woman going out into the heart of Africa. And this is what she says. What memories had already been gathered there. What experiences lay behind the men and women who lived there. What a land was this she had chosen to make her dwelling place. A land formless, mysterious, terrible, ruled by witchcraft and the terrorism of secret societies where the skull was worshipped and blood sacrifices were offered to jujus where guilt was decided by ordeal of poison or boiling oil, where scores of people were murdered, star- uh, sorry, were murdered when a chief died and his wives decked themselves in finery and were strangled to keep him company in the spirit land, where men and women were bound and left to perish by the waterside to placate the god of shrimps, where the alligators were satiated with feeding on human flesh, where twins were done to death and the woman banished to the bush, where semi-nakedness was compulsory and girls were sent to farms to be fattened up for marriage, a land also of disease and fever and white graves, and there too lay her own future. Wow. And yet there she was, this young woman in her 20s, and she's going to give her life to these people. And she loved them. And she reached them. And she turned them from pagan ways eventually towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're facing a situation in the UK that is incredibly dire. Even if there are encouragements. I got from David Earnshaw, oh I don't know, a year or two ago, the biography of Leonard Ravenhill. He's largely forgotten. He wrote a very popular book called Why Revival Tarries. Um, But he talks about going to do a mission in, say, Southampton, that's what I remembered, because I studied there, so I'm, you know, stuck in my mind. Uh, A one-week mission, he says 5,000 people were converted to Christ. Now, supposing he, I don't know, he's an evangelist of today, that 5,000 is probably 50, because we love to have evangelistic statistics, don't we? And, And, okay, supposing he was exaggerating, But I would be thrilled if I was doing a week-long mission and 50 non-Christians came in. Never mind were converted. I would think, wow, we have reached 50 non-Christians. But he's saying 5,000 were converted in one week. And we're only talking about the 1920s and 1930s. So it's not even a century ago. There has been, as we've heard, this rapid spiralling down, this spiritual declension in the land. Amos chapter 8 verse 11. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Some of you know the name Jonathan Stevens, the principal of West Bible College in Brintirian, in, in Bridgend, in South Wales. His son is a lawyer. Two years ago, he sent out his Christmas cards to fellow lawyers in London. And they were Christmas cards with a nativity scene and archer with the words, Unto us a child is born. A few days later, from a fellow lawyer, he got a congratulatory card that they had had a son. In other words, this other lawyer 
was so ignorant of spiritual things, he didn't really understand, even understand that the nativity was about the birth of Jesus. He thought James, or John, um, Jeremy rather, had had a child. This is the days of spiritual ignorance in which we are living. And yet we have in our hands the word of God, we have the gospel, and we want to get it out. So if we meet people who are deceived and deceptive, and I think that's who we do meet, we have what the Bible describes as the word of truth. So our message is one to counter the deception that people are imbibing through the media, through education, through their peer, peers, and etc. We have the word of truth. Psalm 119, verse 43, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, another passage which describes the word of God as the word of truth. If we are meeting people who are living in a difficult situation and demanding situation, and we are, such as Adam, we're, we're always meeting people who've got needs. Everybody senses that they've done wrong. Everybody's aware of their own mortality. If we're meeting people like this, we have the word of grace. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. The Bible, the gospel is called the word of grace. So we have grace for these people. If we are meeting people who are defiled, and we are, because they, they know that their minds are full of things that they ought not to be full of, we have the word of righteousness, Hebrews 5, verse 13. And if we live in a world where there is division, and there is on a global scale, as we heard from David a few minutes ago, but there is on a local scale and a family scale as well, tremendous division, I was talking to a couple last week, and the lady said, my two brothers have not spoken to each other for eight years. There is division in a micro as well as a macro way. Then we have the word of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.19. In other words, we have a message which is going to meet the needs of the men and women whom we're rubbing shoulders with day by day. But I want to sort of focus on the thing I touched on a little bit yesterday, this idea of having a heart for the lost. And I want to speak to my own heart again and to fellow evangelists and say we need to cultivate this passion for the lost, this love for lost men and women. Because if we lose that, we will find ourselves caught up in the trappings of ministry and the mechanism of ministry without the passion that there needs to be for ministry. George Mandel was a French journalist, a politician, and, most importantly, a resistance leader in the Second World War. When France was about to fall to Germany, a British man offered him um, uh, uh, an escape from France on one of the last planes to leave France in 1940. And this particular man, George Mandel, said, I cannot go without my luggage. And my luggage is too big for your little plane. My luggage is France. And therefore, I will stay. He was assassinated on the 7th of July, 1944. I want to talk about the luggage of the evangelist. That which we carry with us. And we cannot just leave behind. That which drives us, that which fills us, that which motivates us. This passion for men and women to come to the Lord for his glory, for his honour, but for their blessing. 
I think we're familiar with the passage in Philippians where the Apostle Paul writes to this church where there's division, etc. And he says, my, my aims are that I might know him and um, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. As Jonathan Fletcher pointed out to me over lunch, it's interesting that the power of the resurrection actually comes before the fellowship of his sufferings. But this idea of the fellowship of his sufferings I don't know whether he picked up, but I quite like D.L. Moody. Um, the man who followed on from Moody was R.A. Torrey. Uh, and Jonathan and I over lunch were having a bit of a discussion. I'm not quite such a great lover of Torrey, but obviously Jonathan Fletcher feels that I've misunderstood him, and that could well be true. I, I just think he was a bit of a hard, a bit of a calculating, academic sort of man. He didn't have the heart and the warmth of Moody, which I so love. But when R.A. Torrey, who did a marvellous work and uh, did some great missions in the UK and the States, when R.A. Torrey was starting on his his evangelistic missions, he felt he needed a music leader. Billy Graham had Cliff Barrows, Moody had Ira Sankey, and and Torrey wanted somebody. And uh, there was a man, an Englishman, called Charles Alexander, who actually married one of the Cadbury's, which is a pretty discerning choice, but anyway, we'll leave that. (laughs) And... um, um, Torrey said to Alexander, look, the trouble is you have lived in a very protected, very lovely Christian home. You've had the best of educations, etc. But this is not where most people are at. You have to see people as they really are. And I'd like you to go on a trip and see New York as it really is. There was a mission in New York, um, a sort of mission hall, rescue mission type thing, um, and um, it's called the Water Street Mission. If ever you can get the book of the Water Street Mission, it's worth reading. And through it had been converted a man called Sam Hadley. He was a gangster, he was a rogue, he was a wretched man, but he was gloriously converted and eventually became the superintendent of the, of the Water Street Mission. And Torrey said to Alexander, you need to spend an evening, a night, with Sam Hadley. Let him show you what's going on in New York. Now, because of all the violence, etc., Sam Hadley had been beaten up, he'd been in fights, and it left him with an unusual gait, so you could hear when he was walking because of this, this limp that he had. Anyway, they met one Saturday evening, and Sam Hadley took Charles Alexander round all the, what we used to call them, dens of iniquity, the dives of, of New York, until eventually, about two in the morning, Charlie Alexander said, I can't stomach any more, it's just... It makes me feel sick. And they parted with a prayer. And they went separate ways down this fairly dark street, but gas lamps, etc. And Sam, um, sorry, Charles Alexander heard the peculiar gait of Sam Hadley. And then it stopped. And Charles Alexander looked, and it was all dim. And he saw a gas lamp, and leaning against it was Sam Hadley, like this. And he thought, oh dear, he must feel ill as well. I'm just going to see that everything's all right. So quickly turned, and he, he rushed to see Sam Hadley. And he was about to tap him on the shoulder and say, everything's all right, when he heard Sam Hadley praying. And I don't mean to be melodramatic, but it was a prayer, something like, Oh God! Oh God! The sin of this city is breaking my heart! Oh God. Now, I think that is the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. It is the luggage of the evangelist. It is the burden 
the passion, the weight we feel because of men and women, no matter how wicked they are, men and women who are outside of Christ. Those who are outside of Jesus are not our enemies. They were, sorry, they are as we once were. And, and we were as they are. But we want them to become as we are. We want them to be saved. They may even be the enemies of God. But as far as we're concerned, there but for the grace of God go I. And actually once I did go. And I want them to be saved. Now this isn't just raw emotion. It's, it's a theme of scripture. So you get Moses praying. Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. And if you know the Bible passage, you'll know there's a big hyphen there. A dash. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. Incredible love for these people. I beg you, be merciful to them. But if not... I don't just want to be saved. Block me out. Now, of course, the Lord's not going to do that. But, but what a heart for these people. He wanted them to be forgiven despite their blatant idolatry. Jeremiah, whom I love so much. And I think if any of the prophets speaks to the people of, of our day, it's the book of Jeremiah. He so represents what we feel. And he's seeing a, 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 a nation just crumbling. And I think that's where we're at. Terry Silvanus or... Kojak. <laughs> Do you remember him? He commented near the end of his life. He said, I love London. It's great to see a city going down the tubes in such style. Yeah. But he was spot on, wasn't he? Andrew Neil, political commentator for 20 years, editor of the Sunday Times. And when he left that job, he said, for the last 20 years I've been the editor of this Sunday newspaper. I have chronicled the decline of the nation. But that's 20 years ago, and how much further... Things have happened. Moses loved the people. Jeremiah loved the people. He, he, he reflects on the things that he's called to say and the people that he has to say these things to. And we can almost, well, we eavesdrop in on his prayer. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And that's chapter 9, chapter 10. Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is severe. But I say, truly, this is an infirmity and I must bear it. It was a wound that his people were lost and going to judgment as the Babylonians were about to invade. We, We find it in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Those of my own race. The people of Israel. These are people of passion. Their heart has been stirred and they've been shaken into proclamation and into activity. But they dare to express to the Lord the pain that they feel the heaviness of heart. But of course the Lord Jesus Christ primarily. After one of those great, great sermons of Jesus, God incarnate, remember, so this is God himself clothed in humanity, speaking to the people. He's denounced the sins of the religious leaders of his day, but his heart is still overwhelmed with love 
and longing for these people. And I, I, I just, you know, I've, I've allowed my mind the last few months to dwell a little bit on this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets. Now think that what that means. The very people that he has commissioned to go and proclaim, you have killed these, my people, my prophets. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not. John Piper calls that a difficult verse to understand. I think it's very plain to understand. And I'm not a theologian in the way that Piper is. It's absolutely clear. I would have gathered you. But you would not. He longed for these people. And Jesus doesn't seem to find any comfort in the notion that, oh, well, we're living in difficult times. Or, well, the tide is out. Or God will save his elect. Or, well, we have got an evangelistic event planned. Or, well, all we're called to be is faithful. He he sees these people as lost and he wants them. I would, you would not. And it broke his heart. His luggage was too big. And so that took him to Gethsemane. Where he agonised in prayer because he knew what it would mean. He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. I don't know whether any of you ever... Um, heard the great Welsh evangelist of a few years ago, David Shepherd. What a wonderful preacher and orator, and he, he, he was powerful. I remember hearing him say that when his wife was giving birth to their first child, she was in such agony, such labour, that she sweat blood from her forehead. And Jesus had that intensity of agony and pain in his longing for these people that he sweat great drops of blood and, uh, and, 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 and he knew he was going to carry their sin on himself. I find this one of the most compelling themes of all of the Bible, that God's heart is one towards men and women that we would very naturally criticise and write off and disdain because of their wickedness. But he wants these people to be saved. He takes no pleasure, the Bible says, in the death of the wicked. He appeals to men and women and says, turn you, turn you, for why will you perish, says the Lord. And he grieves because you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. When um, uh, Samuel Chadwick was the principal of Cliff College and people applied to go to the the college to train, apparently one of the questions he used to ask these candidates was... um, I'd like you just to read this section of Genesis 3. And he saw, he felt that he could work out whether these people were truly saved, truly evangelical, by the way they read out, the tone they used in reading out God's question to Adam, Adam, where are you? So that if they read it as, Adam, where are you? (laughs) He clearly got the idea that they hadn't got grace. But if they read it, Adam, where are you? He knew that they understood this seeking heart of God. God does not want to drive away the wicked from him, but he appeals to them to turn from their wicked ways and find salvation and forgiveness. And I am absolutely convinced that this is to be our tone. So we go to the very last page of the Bible and we find first, and the spirit and the bride say, come. 
Then it goes on, let him who hears say, come. And then, let him who thirsts, come. This is God's heart at the end of scripture, appealing, come, come. And his burden is to be our burden. His desire, our desire. His passion, our passion and appealing. I am a blood-bought believer and I enjoy immense blessings because of the goodness of God and immeasurably more planned for me in eternity. This is incredible. Therefore, I cannot allow myself just to casually look at crowds or individuals as if they're as if it's neutral whether they believe in God and have a relationship with God or not. Now that is going to affect and impact the people with whom I do business. It might be my news agent, it might be my bank manager, it might be my the lady who runs the sweetie shop, it might be my doctor. And the trouble is, I know the lady who runs the sweetie shop, that's why I've got trouble with the doctor. It might be my <laughs> pharmacist, etc. All these people I'm impacting, my neighbours... It's going to impact them. Those with whom I'm rubbing shoulders. They are either right with God. Or they need to be right with God. And have become my mission field. So when I'm standing just in a bus queue. Or I'm sitting on a train opposite somebody. Have I prayed Lord. May this be the right person. Could we just open up into conversation somehow. When I'm. I don't know, just going through the, 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 the Morrison's checkout. If there's no queue behind, do I have a few moments of opportunity with the, the, the person? I, I do. And everyone has an everlasting destiny. And it may just be that I am given a few moments alone with that person so that I can speak with them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who already have turned their back on Jesus, they need him. Those who I think may have turned their back on him actually may be more open to respond if I could get into this one-to-one situation and try lovingly, winsomely, but boldly share something of the gospel. The issue is always not are they nice people, but are they converted people? Are they new creatures in the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm convinced that every Christian is a witness. I don't, I don't believe every Christian is an evangelist. Every Christian is a witness. But we're here because we have been given not only the privilege of witnessing, but we are evangelists. The gift that God has given us is to be able to explain the gospel to non-Christians in a context where they're listening, but to explain it so that they could understand it. And we have this responsibility to model this to the church round about, but to use the gift in reaching those we're meeting. Whether it's, as we saw in Jen's DVD yesterday, the plumber or the builder, or whether it's our professor or the person who lives down the street. If somebody was trapped in a burning building, we would go to immense lengths to try and rescue that person. Uh, we, we wouldn't think, oh dear, am I going to get my clothes dirty? Am I going to injure? We, we would go in. We would try and rescue that person. And I believe that as evangelists today, we need to be aware men and women round about us are, are lost, they're perishing, they need to be rescued. And without being over the top, having a passionate desire that is sacrificial, that nails ourselves to the cross of dying to self, and then going out to reach them. Um, 
for many, many years as a family, we, we used to go on holiday to Holland. Uh, we used to go into Eastern Europe and it was communist and then we'd, on the way back, we'd stay and re- sort of recover for a little while in Holland. And I love Holland. I remember being in Nordwijk in the very north of Holland. And I stood and I just looked at a bronze bust of somebody called Henriette Roland Holst. She was a Dutch poet and a socialist. And underneath were the words which I asked somebody to translate for me. Man, uh, sorry, man's sorrows often will not let me sleep. Now, she was not a Christian. But you get it in Hudson Taylor. So he comes back from China and he's walking on Brighton Beach, having been in a Christian conference where there are a thousand people singing praise to Jesus, but he can't get out of his mind the thought that one million Chinese are dying every month without ever hearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he could not sleep at night. And he's praying, and that's where God gives him the vision for the China Inland Mission. So how does this burden grow within us? It grows, I am convinced, by praying that God would give us compassion and passion. And then for praying for unconverted people. Now, are you praying for unconverted people? You say, oh, Roger, come on, we are evangelists. Hey, I know we can be so involved in the work, we forget to be praying for unconverted people. See, who did you speak with last week about the Lord? How many times... If at all, have you prayed for them since? Now, we can't pray for everybody we meet, but there'll be some. We need to write them down in our little notebook or prayer book and and be regularly bringing them to the Lord. And some of us, I'm one, my own brother is unconverted. And how many years have I prayed for him? And you sort of think, oh, well, he's never going to be converted. You all can almost get tired of praying for the same unconverted person. But how does passion grow? Well, we pray not that passion might grow. We pray for individuals, not that passion might grow in us. But nevertheless, it does. And by regularly praying for an individual, we find that our hearts drawn to these people. We long for their salvation. So let's pray that compassion, passion will grow. And let us pray for unconverted people. And then secondly, I do believe we need to be involved in, with others in evangelistic endeavour. Now, the word maverick has been used several times. I sort of relish in the fact that I'm a bit of a maverick. And uh, I love certain eccentricities. I, I just well, I'm not bothered if everybody laughs at me. I just want to be like this. And uh, I got a hat recently and my wife and daughter, Dad, Roger, you can't wear that. Well, that for me is a red rag to a bull to wear it, so I think it's lovely. But then, now, now, we don't want to become weirdos, but we are... All right, some of us may have okay. Uh, but we are mavericks, and the, the trouble with mavericks is we can do things on our own. And when we do things on our own, a hardness of spirit can develop. But to be with others, to be evangelising together... I find that a passion, a compassion grows because you pray together and you witness together and you feel the hurt of rejection together and you share the joy of encouragement together. So I beg of us not to be lone mavericks but to be involved in corporate evangelism. 
And if the church to which we belong doesn't quite do things in the way that we'd like, nevertheless, let's be involved with them. Hear their prayers for their friends, their contacts, the people they're trying to get along, what they're wanting to achieve. And, and the, the, the passion seems to stir. But the luggage of life of the evangelist are the people round about. We can't just get on a plane and hop away from the troubles that there are around us. And even if we do go on holiday, I don't know about you, but if I go to France, say, I have to get a load of French Gospels and try and give them out and talk to people. Life just doesn't seem worthwhile unless every day there's something to redeem it with an opportunity to talk with somebody about the Lord. It's this, I don't know, not allowing the fire to die but to be stirred, to burn us up, to consume us with a love for the Lord and a love for the lost. I'm going to pray the final, um, the final uh, verse and chorus of that hymn that I gave out in a few moments. But I think as well, I'd just like to end, if I may, I'm just trying to sneak a quick look at my watch. I'd like to end by reading... Just a list of some of the places where the Apostle Paul preached. Because I think it's amazing. He said he preached in synagogues. I've got ten references as to where he preached in synagogues in the book of Acts. But he didn't just stop there. He went to the stately house of the proconsul Sergius Paulus on the Isle of Pathos, chapter 13, verse 6, and he preached. I don't know what you'd say in a stately home. Whether you'd think, oh, I can't say anything here. But no, he, he had to preach the gospel. He went to a prayer meeting in Philippi, by the riverside, and he preached Jesus. And of course, Lydia uh, was one. Then he finds himself in a prison cell in Philippi, and he's beaten up, and, and at midnight he's singing praises. He didn't go on a pity party, but he praises God, and there's the earthquake, and the, uh, the, the Philippian jailer comes, etc. And, and, and the Philippian jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So he's clearly explained things in a prison cell. And then he goes to the marketplace in Athens. And what does he do? Well, whoever he happens to meet, he preaches. And then, of course, he's taken to the Areopagus. And he reasons from the the, the familiar to the unfamiliar as he tries to introduce the risen Lord Jesus to these people. And then he goes into a home in Titus, uh, the home of Titus Justus in chapter 18, and the home of Priscilla and Aquila in chapter 18, and what does he do? He preaches the word. And then he goes to the lecture hall of um, Tyrannus in, in Ephesus, chapter 19, verse 9, and what does he do? He preaches. And then he finds himself caught up in the midst of a rioting crowd in Ephesus, and he could have been sentenced to death, but he stands up and he gives a word of testimony. He just cannot keep silent about it. He's put before the Sanhedrin in Ephesus, chapter 23, verse 1. And he spoke on the resurrection, because he was trying to divide the, the Pharisees from the Sadducees, which he did very powerfully, but he spoke about the gospel. He's taken to the palace of Felix, and he reasons of righteousness and self-control and justice. Then he's taken to the court of Festus and Agrippa and Bernice, and he gives his testimony and he preaches the gospel. Then he finds himself in a shipwreck. The, the, the boat is going down in chapter 27, verse 25, and he slips in a word about the Lord, even in that situation. And he ends up in Rome, and from morning till evening, every day, he reasoned with them from the scriptures about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If we have passion, when we're asked to take a wedding, I'm sure we won't just talk to the couple. Oh, every time that happens, I want to scream out. I was at a wedding not that long ago, and the church was packed, and the couple of godly people had asked the minister to preach the gospel. He never even mentioned the Lord Jesus, but he, 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 they said, will you preach the gospel? He said, now, I want to talk to you two this afternoon. And I thought, well, why? There are 250 other people here. You can talk to those two any time. Why not these? And I think he, he's just bottling out. The grave, we're given an opportunity, I don't know, a birthday party. Let's slip in something about the gospel, slip in something that's appropriate about the word. A passion that insists from our heart to our mind to proclaim the gospel in every situation. When the foundations have been destroyed, what do the righteous do? Well, you dig the foundations again. And we may be in a situation in our land where we can't harvest at the moment. We're not reaping. I don't know that it's even that easy to sow. Well, let's start ploughing and digging again. Preparing the way to sow. And then we pray and be watered and in due time are harvesting. We have this, this word of hope, this word of truth, this word of righteousness, this word of reconciliation. And we must get it out. And we must do so with a heart that drives us on. Until our dying day, we make much of the Lord Jesus. Well, let's pray this. I'll, I'll pray it. But think carefully these words as I pray the last verse and the chorus of that hymn. And we're going to sing a great hymn. Dear Lord, I ask for the eyes that see Deep down to the world's sore need. I ask for a love that holds not back, but pours out itself indeed. I want the passionate power of prayer that yearns for the great crowd's soul. I want to go amongst the fainting sheep and tell them my Lord makes home. Let me look at the crowd as my Saviour did, till my eyes with tears grow dim. Let me look till I pity the wandering sheep. And love them for love of him. For I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we're going to stand and sing Bishop Horton's great, great hymn, Facing a Task Unfinished That Drives Us to Our Knees.